Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 349, a part one of my conversation with the director of percussion activities at Capital University in Ohio, Julie Licata. Let's get right to it. Julie and I met briefly in person this past PASIC through previous podcast guest Joshua Smith, but we'd been in touch earlier that year about having Julie on the show. When I first contacted her, I was unaware she was about to start working at her new job at Capital University, so she asked that we talk after she's had a chance to get her footing at her new job. That's what we've done, and it was great to have her on the show. Julie's been in the percussion game for quite a while. Prior to her teaching at Capital University, she was a longtime professor of percussion at the State University of New York in Oneonta, otherwise known as SUNY Oneonta, as well as a recording percussionist with various chamber groups, including the windstruck duo that she does with flutist Anna Laura Gonzalez. She's also been involved in research with psychologist and professor Michael Faber regarding the emotional experiences of performers and has parlayed that into her own performance and research over the years. She's trained at a number of well-known institutions, including Capital, her undergrad alma mater, along with South Carolina and North Texas. It was a lot of fun to talk to Julie, and we end up going along on a number of topics, so we'll split this one up into two parts. On part one, we'll talk about her work at Capital, her research, growing up in Ohio, and her undergrad years at Capital University. A part two, coming next week, we'll get to the rest. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on May 15th, 2023. And it begins right now. Give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are at this point. Uh, So at Capital University, I teach private lessons in percussion and drum sets. I teach percussion ensembles, and at Capital, we have two ensembles, one that's a smaller upper-level chamber group and one that's a larger, like, first, second-year conducted group, although I don't conduct it very much. I do mostly, uh, like, unconducted things. I have a couple of TAs uh, each semester, one, and these are, it's all an entirely undergraduate institution, so the TAs are undergraduate students um, who I have coaching one piece a week in percussion ensemble. And I like meet with them on a weekly basis to do lesson planning and um, practice conducting, score study, that kind of stuff, and just talk about general rehearsal techniques. And then I also um, have a TA for the percussion methods class that I teach. So I meet with that student as well. And then so I'm teaching percussion methods. I every And that's once a year. And then every few years, I end up teaching a primary instrument lit class, sort of lit pedagogy class to the junior percussion performance majors. And I did actually have to do that this semester for the first time. And so I also like, I'm kind of coordinating the percussion area. So I'm doing a lot of logistical things with adjunct faculty, teaching private lessons and other uh, full-time faculty in the percussion studio um, who uh, right now, Eric Payton has been teaching there for, I think, I'm going to say at least 25 years. It might be longer. And then all the inventory instrument buying. Also, things that creep into that are um, uh, advising workload. Uh, advising workload is pretty hefty here. And 
recruitment, auditions. Yeah, something else that has come up, um, fundraising, trying to get money for the studio. Mm. Um, it's an interesting um, change uh, because the, the past institution I was at was a state institution and I was there for about 15 years and it was an entirely different like infrastructure, both for the big, like it's, it's, a, it's a system with 64 campuses yeah. um, in New York state and there's a lot of bureaucracy in there. And now I'm at a single institution with, that's a private school uh, with a conservatory and the bureaucracy is totally different in some ways, so much easier, but in other ways, there's a lot less assistance on certain things. And uh, so there's a lot more workload outside of teaching on the faculty. I think that's about it. As, aside from like also trying to have a performing career and um, yeah, doing I mean, all these. What, what, what kinds of stuff are involved there? For performing? Mm-hmm. I've regularly given like, you know, annual recitals on campus, but I'm also trying to do performances off, off campus. You know, I've, I just moved to Columbus this year, so I'm kind of working my way into the, uh, the scene here, but I was here 20 years ago and I do know a lot of people that are here. So it's actually been pretty awesome. I've been, I've been busy, like playing Broadway shows that come through town, um, got to play with the who in the mm-hmm. fall, um, and, uh, you know, there, there's tons of orchestras, local regional orchestras around here too, doing that kind of stuff, playing with, playing in churches, but like the, the more like solo or soloist type things that I do. I, I mean, I guess I'm, I don't really consider myself so much a soloist I'm, as a chamber musician. So I do a lot of that, uh, professionally. And I've also been trying to like maintain contact and performance, um, performance stuff that I had cultivated in New York. I'm trying to maintain that while I'm now eight hours away from all of those people. So one of the, one of the groups or one of the things that I've done for the past like 10 plus years is I've been playing in a flute and percussion duo and my, my partner now eight hours away, uh, we've managed to do uh, two big performances just this semester. And we've got recording projects on the, on the, on the docket for this summer and hopefully another, a little bit of a tour and in the fall or the spring. And then I do a lot, I've worked a lot with composers who write for percussion and electronic in some way. Uh, sometimes like I've worked with, I'm sorry, composers who work with analog um, sound manipulation and some that work with digital and some that do both. Um, so I kind of, I've got some past, recent past projects that I've done with time, like feedback looping, time time lag, like tape looping and Something that I have coming up is a project with uh, Matt Sargent, who teaches at Bard College. Um, and we, the piece is for a lot of metallic percussion and uh, various Max MSP um, patches manipulating the sound. So I'm, that's what I'm really digging into this summer and hopefully getting on the road in the fall. Let's go back to Capital for a sec. What interested you in? Coming, you said you did your undergrad here, but what interested you in coming back to teach there? Well, it's kind of funny because I, I, you know, I had been established. I've been I've been at SUNY uh, in Oneonta for 15 years, and I really liked teaching there. I like the students. Um, the challenge of working with it was primarily an undergraduate population of students in a BA in music or BA in music industry. So not music majors. And and it was really like a lovely situation to be teaching in a space where I'm cultivating the love of music for people who are not necessarily going to continue on as musicians, but who, you know, 
avid music supporters and doing music as a hobby. And I really found that to be like, I, I came to a place where I was like, just really happy to be contributing to society like that. I really enjoyed it. And the students were super open-minded, always like every day was different. It was different. Every student had different expectations, skill levels, and like different interests. And, and we went in so many different directions in terms of lessons. And there was no prescri- there was no prescription for me. Like everybody could go wherever they wanted. There was no expectation. Like we could do whatever we wanted to do. And there was a lot of freedom and flexibility in that. I don't know, after like eight or 10 years of teaching there, I started feeling like it'd be kind of like, I, there's so many things that I learned by teaching at that institution. One, uh, and I would say one of the biggest things that I learned and ended up integrating into my teaching a lot is improvisation, um, both in the uh, individual space and uh, ensemble spaces, because I had a lot of students who were coming into ensembles, some who had been studying for 10 years had done like, you know, New York State solo and ensemble contest and gotten, you know, the high levels on that. And then I would have students who literally had never touched a drumstick before in the same class. And so like I found improvisation to be a really useful tool to get students to learn, just to learn a lot more efficiently um, because they could learn from it by watching each other and not having to ask questions like, well, how do, how do you bow a symbol? Well, somebody else is bowing a symbol in that space and you just see it and you kind of, you're like, oh, I can pick this up and try it out myself. And just having that like open play area, I think was, it's just proven to be such a useful tool in, in so many different ways. About like, I say like eight or 10 years after teaching at that institution, I started thinking, I think that this is something that was missing from my conservatory education um, across the board. And I'm not just talking about my undergraduate, but undergraduate masters and DMA. Like I never really improvised outside of the context of like structured chord progressions, or I guess I did a lot of work with composition departments when I was a student at all of those, all of my, through all of my schooling. And so I did a lot with um, the like kind of experimental music ensembles, but never like dedicated in the percussion studio or percussion section with a name at a pedagogical reason. So I thought I really wanted to have the opportunity at some point in my career to see what it would be like to teach the way that I taught at a BA in music with all that freedom and flexibility in a space where things tend to be a little bit more narrow Mm -hmm. um, and where students tend to have more technical ability maybe come to the institution with more experience in different styles. So that's, that's one of the, like the big picture things of why I, I was interested in capital. Obviously, yes, I was interested in it because, because I went to school there and it's a place as I went through my years of teaching um, at SUNY, I had also had a, in, in, in Oneonta, New York, where the, where SUNY was, there was also a very small private a college with a school of music, um, Hartwick College. And I had kind of often like ended up over there doing stuff with the faculty in that department. And every time I would go in there, I'd be like, ah, oh, this feels like home here. Like this small environment, mm-hmm. um, you know, small faculty, small numbers of faculty, smaller number of students. And just like the vibe of that place always felt like home to me. And I was like, I think, you know, it feels like home because that's where I came from in terms of my undergraduate degree. Um, my master's and my DMA were definitely a very large institutions um, that I couldn't imagine going to as a undergraduate always was appealing to me as well. But like what really 
sold it to me was when I started the interview process, I was articulating things that things about like changing the culture of conservatorization, changing the culture of just music education in general, both at the college level and K through 12 and saying like, there's like all these things that need to just get blown up. And uh, I'd really like to be at a place where people care about blowing stuff up (laughs) and, uh, and trying new things. And I was articulating this very boldly, you know, I've been teaching for 15 years. I didn't need the job. Uh, That's what I I was exactly. I was like, (laughs) I'm sorry to to, to interrupt, but I was like, exactly. The same thought was it's, it's a nice position when you can, you can like legit say Mm -hmm. exactly what you want. If I don't get the job, guess what? I still have my job. I still have the job. Yeah. And it, and it was, I was like very bold. I really felt like I'm like saying stuff like this and this and this and this and this, this is all happening. And like, it needs to stop. We need to just blow up the whole system and like completely revamp the idea of recruitment, completely revamp the idea of admissions, completely revamp the idea of how auditions happen. Like all of this needs to stop and just blow it up. So we can start new because, you know, the problem is, is that we're like spend so much time. We're trying to change things while we're doing it. And it's really hard to do. I mean, and, and realistically, I've, I've gotten to the institution and I realized, well, you know, blowing stuff up isn't really happening. It isn't really going to happen, but it's in the interview process. I like, I just kept saying these things in my letter. I had to write a, um, I guess something like a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement mm-hmm. and all of these things. Every time I sent something new in, I was like, there's no way they're going to call me because I'm like literally telling them everything they're doing. is just re- really messed up. Like we need, this. <laughs> we need to stop. And everything and is crap. Kept, Please every, hire me. <laughs> but yes. And they kept like, they kept calling back. And I was like, okay. And then like, I mean, every single time I was like, no way, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And they kept calling back. And I was like, okay, they offered me the job. They must actually want this. And so I, I couldn't turn it. I couldn't turn it down, um, even though it's a pay cut I took, you know, yeah, to, yeah. and I moved to another state. I had to start all over in terms of like building connections in the music, in, you know, in performance areas. Did you have but, to come in at a at a lower rank? Oh, yes, that too. Yeah. Like, I, did you have to come in as assistant or could you come in as associate? I am lowest level. Okay, but, so you're assistant, yeah. Yeah, but I did negotiate many years towards tenure. So I'm actually going up for tenure next year. So gotcha. after two years of being there and that like, I, it's possible I could have asked to come in at, at the higher rank, but I also like, I mean, I'd like to debunk the whole tenure system too. Yes, um, sure. <laughs> one uh, thing at a time, Julie. <laughs> but one thing at a time. Yeah. But I, I did, you know, I respect the, the, the institution enough to say like, I'm not coming in there and saying like, I need to have tenure as soon as I walk in because I need you to, I need to know that you're going to, you want me as much as I want to be here. And I want, I want us to have time to figure that out. So like, I'm fine with, I'm fine with the ranking and all like, I don't care. I think I probably could have been full professor by now at SUNY. I've been there for 15 years. I was tenured in like 2000, I think 13 or 15, like 2015. And I never went up for full professor just because I was like, I don't think I'm, I don't think I've done what I need to do to get there yet, but I probably could have, could have made that happen. Yeah. So like that really, the the big thing was that 
while while I was in the interview process that they really were like on board with what I was what I was saying and at every stage of the interview process too like once I did the zoom interview and then the phone interview and the campus interview like I felt like the the people working at Capitol like I felt like I was conversation with them like I wasn't the only one thinking about these things they also there were so many people on faculty already thinking about this stuff too so like the conversation was just, it was just that it was a conversation of people who've been teaching for a while and not like, I'm like trying to come in and blow stuff up, but they're all like, yeah, we really want to change this. It just felt right. It just felt right. And and I actually like at the end of the interview, the campus interview, I met with the provost and he asked me the question that he was like, well, I know nobody else has asked you this, but like, why would you leave a tenure track or tenured position mm-hmm. to come teach here now? And I said, yeah, didn't really know until I got here, but this kind of collegial setting where faculty are in constant conversation with each other about how to change the landscape. This is where I want this That's what I want. I didn't know that until I got here. I didn't realize that like, this is what I've been looking for. I mean, I loved teaching at SUNY, um, but there, you know, again, it's like one of those, you know, a big institution thing, don't necessarily have those same uh, opportunities for connections and just, you know, talking to people in the hallway that are just there. (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah, totally worth it. And it's been funny because like all of my students and I think pretty much everybody knows I took a pay cut to come and do this. And they're like, why would you do that? And I'm like, you know, it's not always about the dollar. Like, it's not about that. Like, I also got to be I'm closer to my parents and my brothers and my nieces and my nephews and all my family. Um, still like two or three hours away from some of them, but much closer than I was before. And, yeah. you know, it's a, and that's like the thing, you know, students don't quite understand that it's not, not everything's about the money, but like, you know, you got to get old to figure some of the, <laughs> that priorities shift and yeah. yeah. You said you didn't go up for full. Oh, right. Was that your call or is yes. that someone else said, are you like, because there's times when you can get advice, like, right. I don't know if you're like, I don't know. Cause the thing is what, what, it, what Julie has said is, which is true is that once you go up for associate, you you don't have to go up for full. Right. Right. You, you, you stay at associate. You're fine. Like no one's, yeah. no one's, yeah. Your job isn't at, at a, um, isn't in jeopardy necessarily because you haven't gone for full. You could just stay at associate. Right. right. No, I, it was definitely my own decision. Like I, I didn't think that it was, I didn't think that I wouldn't get it. Sure. It was more just my own, you know, I don't really buy into the system a whole lot. And so I just, in my own mind was like, I have this idea of what I want to accomplish before I can tell myself that I'm a full professor. And I don't know that I've, I, the word, the, the, the term imposter syndrome has totally been on my mind a lot in the last like year. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that part of that is just me not, not believing like I have done the things I need to do in order to claim that title. Um, I I'm probably have, if I actually, you know, like it's always like that practice that at the end of the school year, when you have to go through and write your, your annual re- write report and you're yeah. like, Oh man, I did all of that. Like, yeah. ah. but like in the moment I, yeah, in the moment I tend to forget those things and think, Oh, I really haven't done anything. I'm just, all I'm doing is teaching. 
yeah. but it's it's kind of a it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing to get through. And I actually had a conversation with bo- both of my percussion colleagues at, at Capitol just at the end of this year, like that we're all like, oh, man, I've been feeling this and this and this and this. I'm like, I don't think I. I don't think I'm getting through. I don't think I'm getting, I don't think I, am I the right person for these students today? Because we're all, you know, older and the students are way different than they were when we were students. And like, I don't know, can I really get to them in the way that they need to be gotten to? Am I learning the right things? And yeah, like we're all feeling it. And I think it's especially potent now just because the students are so different and because the students had to deal with this most, you know, with the pandemic and like, it's, they don't, they don't know who they are, where they are, how different they are. And, you know, even the difference between the seniors who came in on in 2019 and the juniors who came in in 2020 and the sophomores and the freshmen, like they are all very distinctly different um, in terms of class and just yeah, it's deadlines, it's, it's, going to class, like those mm, kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, one of the things that I've thought about a lot this year as I've seen the students struggling is, you know, like the older older professors, and, and I am one of them, we think back to how, what, what we did when we were in school. And I think, yeah, I was playing in all these ensembles. I was going to all my classes. I was getting my work done. And I was practicing five, six, seven hours a day on my own outside of all of that time. You know, as I, when I look at what they're doing, I feel like they're doing, they have the same amount of responsibilities, but they're not able to put in the same amount of individual practice time and I keep thinking or keep trying to reflect on like, why is it so much different? Because we have the same amount of time in every day that we had 20 years ago when I was an undergrad, we had like the students are playing in the same amount of ensembles as I did 20 years ago. Like the thing that I keep coming back to is the, the idea that like work-life balance was not a topic of conversation in the same way 20 years ago. Like if I was, if I was complaining about having to come back after five o'clock after I had dinner and practice, mm, <laughs> I don't think I'd be getting any sympathy. They'd be like, no, you, you got to do what you got to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think it's wrong. Like work-life balance is not wrong. It is absolutely right <laughs> for reality and the world. Yeah. Um, but it's like, how then do the students get to what they need to get to, to actually get to the mastery that they should. And I think part of, I think there, I think it's two things. Like one, the students do need to be able to, they do need to learn, they do need to build skills and resiliency so that they can put in a little bit more. But I also think that like the curriculum has to be revamped and revised and the expectations of, you know, somebody playing in seven ensembles a semester and then also having to practice their own private, you know, individual lesson stuff. And some of these kids are working. I was a working student. Right. Well, that was, yeah, that was one part of it is the outside job. Yeah. Yeah. And and I have, you know, I have several students who are also living at home and have responsibilities there, you know, I guess a lot less separation between life and work and things get a little bit hairy. So so something, I mean, things have to change on both sides. Like students do need to build resiliency in a way that maybe thwarted because of the pandemic. Um, I thought like, you know, 
think of think of the situation like the students like you're in your senior year of high school or wherever you are in 2020 and like all of a sudden something happens and everything shuts down like that is now the standard response everything yep. shuts down it's like well that can't happen actually in any right. other situation like life just things keep happening and you have to keep pushing through and but yeah but i also think that there are a lot of ways that that redundancies can be removed from curriculum to streamline things for the students so that they actually have more time to do the things they need to do outside of classes. I assume that is not just at Capitol. It's not. It's not. <laughs> Agree with what you said. I, and I, and the social media aspect is not something we did not have to deal with. No, God. And that is that is a major factor. Yeah, and I bet that takes up at least an hour or two a day. And it's, I get it. I mean, I'm, I don't love it. I don't like it at all, but like I can, I can find myself scrolling through Facebook doing the same thing. Like, and like, all it's like, I was supposed to be checking my email and I clicked on this link instead. And now it's like 30 minutes later and oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Tell me a little bit more about your research with a psychology professor and performance that you've been looking at. I will say that like I was more the guinea pig of the research than doing the actual research because yeah. uh, so, so my colleague at SUNY Oneonta, Michael Faber, he um, he actually started teaching dur- at SUNY in during 2020 and he actually moved into the house right across the street from me. So we became quick friends because he had no other friends <laughs> because he just moved to town and it was 2020. We could talk to each other over the fence. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so he and his, he and his whole family, uh, we became really good friends. Um, but anyway, I think that like he and I had been talking about uh, like just performance in general and how you have to get to a level of mastery where you can be in the space that you are without being actively thinking and judging the space that you're in, but responding to the space that you're in. And so like we ended up, and the other thing that like infiltrated into my thinking is that I I actually did a, a 10 day silent meditation course a couple of years ago in which I started to like, I kind of just started to understand performance as a meditation in a way that I had never before. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of dabbled in it a little bit thinking about how in a performance I've done so much preparation and this, I'm talking about like composed prepared music as a soloist or an ensemble that you've done so much preparation that you can just kind of be in the moment. And that's, you know, so I started talking about that. And then I also started thinking about how that, how that impacts um, the, uh, my other interest in performance, which is improvised music and how, I'm bringing all the things that I know into the space, just like I'm bringing it all into the space that you and I are in right now. I'm not, I didn't prepare any of this, but like I have all of this in my head because I've been thinking about these things for, you know, 20 or 30 years and building on my thoughts. And we like hear the words that we're saying and respond to each other. We're improvising right now. And so like how, when I go into a musical improvisation, how do I, prepare myself differently and how do I how am I on the stage the same or the different or differently than I am when I'm performing composed music and I have come to to space to realize like initially when I started improvising and, and connecting this idea of meditation to improvising I thought that it was a lot easier to get into the flow when I was improvising than when I'm playing performed music 
and it's slowly filtering itself into me playing composed music as well. So like, I'll, I'll just, as an example, cause I, th- I think I kind of rambly around to this and don't, I'm not, I'm not really well articulated on this topic because it's so new in my mind. Sure. So this semester I did a, a performance with a colleague at Capitol, um, Stan Smith, who's a phenomenal jazz uh, guitarist and composer. And he, he, he and I were talking last semester about improvising and how I've been bringing that to my students at Capitol and how, like how they're responding to it and stuff. And one day he was like, Hey, do you want to do a performance, an improvised performance at Capitol? Fully improvised. We don't talk about what we do at all before we get there. And I was like, heck yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to do that. Yeah. Um, and as we got closer to the performance, I kept thinking, you know, I don't want to pre-plan what I'm saying because that won't let me be in the moment. Right. right. Yeah. Even the day of like the, what I did on the day of to prepare myself was to do ex- extra meditation because I wanted to really just like, think I am right here right now. I don't want to pre-plan anything I'm saying, anything I'm playing, any, you know, I thought about what instruments I wanted to bring and that was basically it, but I didn't tell him what I was bringing. He didn't tell me what he was bringing. And the, the way that he said, the way we prepared was that he and I got together for coffee, like two or three times and just like talked. It wasn't even necessarily talking about music, but, but that day, like getting myself to the space where I wasn't projecting my expectations, I kept thinking how different this is from how I prepare for a composed performance where the night before I'm running through all the things I had to have memorized. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the sheet music in my mind. I'm visualizing all this stuff. I'm thinking about the interactions with the other people. I'm, I'm doing visualizations of myself on the stage to prepare myself for what happens differently when I'm in that space than when I'm in the practice room or when the space is empty, how does the sound different? Um, And I'm doing all of this mental preparation. And I said, I think that I actually want to not do that. I want to see, like, I want that. I want to not do that because like I'm projecting a lot of things and I'm creating a lot of expectations. Um, And it takes me out of the moment. Right. And if the goal for me is to be in the moment as much as possible, I have to, I have to get to the place where I finally trust myself that I've done everything I need to do and all my preparations have brought me to the place where I can not worry the night before the performance that something's going to go wrong or, you know, and, and so I, tr- so then like a month later, I did a recital with the flutists that I've been working with. Um, and I tried this and I was very surprised to find myself successfully performing <laughs> after not allowing myself to project all of these things about how it's going to go wrong or how mm-hmm. I can avoid this or how I can avoid that. Um, and it actually was as freeing to play that composed music as it was to play the improvised concert. And I was present for all of the things that came into the space that I didn't bring. I was the guinea pig in this research with, with the psychologist at SUNY. He was the one that knew all the terms. He knew all of the the language and he had, he's a musician himself. He actually, I, I think I'm going to incorrectly say that he went to Ohio state, even though I know he went to Michigan. <laughs> wow. Oh, that is not the, that is not the mistake you want to make. Julie. <laughs> that is not, you know that <laughs> <laughs> I do know, that. <laughs> um, but he played, he marched, he played clarinet. Um, and, 
And so he's and he's very like his fam- whole family. They're like very much into listening to music. And we just got into these conversations about like, what is it? What does it actually feel like to be on the stage? And 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 so the the article that we wrote together was really like him setting the stage of what is the flow that you get? Like, what are the, what are the technical terms of the flow you are in when you're performing? And then I would come in and write like a blurb of like, this is what I'm actually thinking about. Like as a musician, I'm, I'm aware of people walking in the room. I'm aware of the sound of my instrument and how it's different with this in this space and how it's different. The the more people that are in there and how it's different between composed and non improvised music and he really was the the brains of the project. I, I was the guinea pig. I, and I think maybe I clarified the question. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's a, it's a, it's a good article, I think. And uh, it's worth, worth a read. It's a quick, it's a short article. Because you are, you kind of applied the techniques to a, a composed concert. Mm-hmm. As, I, as I like that, that phrasing, um, a composed music concert. How much did it change the last, like, let's say month. It changed a lot, honestly, because I think that really the thing that changed was that I decided to trust myself and not over prepare. Mm. Like that's been my MO has been over preparing to, to avoid failure mm-hmm. um, I, yeah. for everything. And I will say, I learned this a lot sooner in teaching than I did as a performer because I, because there are so many other elements in teaching, so many other people in the space that are affecting what actually does happen in the classroom, yeah. that I feel like I learned it a lot sooner there. And I feel like everything in my life, it's like, I'm learning things as an improviser, I'm learning things as a teacher, and then I learn them as a human out in the world, like of social interactions. Cause like, that's like the, that's my last place of like learning. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm pretty, I've learned, I learned things as a musician and a teacher. And then like, I'm like, oh, I could probably be cooler <laughs> as a human too. Like when I could you're in target. Not, yes. <laughs> I could be not so awkward when I go, yeah, in, yeah. like I could just let go and like not right. and just trust myself. Like I'm not, <laughs> Yes. you know, it's, it's interesting. So it really did change the, the last month because finally, like I got to a place where I accepted that, like, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I've chosen things that I know that I will succeed at. Like I'm not in school anymore where somebody's making me play this because they're trying to push me to the next thing. Like, and it's also not like I'm, I'm not constantly only playing things that I'm good at. Like I'm always trying out new things too, but I try them out and I understand that's what I'm doing. And I accept that this is not like, I'm going to play this piece at about 80% of my ability because that's, that's where I am. And, and just also just accepting that, like, everything is just part of the process. Even the performance is part of the process. And that's another, that's a thing that, you know, I think is really hard for young people to know and to accept. And the, uh, and then the other piece of all this is that I want to make sure that my students are better than me. Right. Number one, and that they learn these things way sooner than I did Mm -hmm. because I want them to, I want, I just, my whole goal in life is that I want people to feel good about making music at any level yeah. And I think we can do that. Like music does not have to be hard to be good. It does right. not have to be the most virtuosic thing you ever played. It does not have to be fast and loud. So I, so I felt like it also it was really important for me to present my performance and say, this is where I am. Yeah. This is it. 
had I not had a full-time job, I probably could have done the concert better. <laughs> of course. Like, sure. but this is what I've, I'm, I'm teaching full-time. I'm in my first year at a new institution. Like, could I have spent eight hours a day practicing this for the past year and been much better? Sure. Yeah. But that's not, that's not reality. Right. This, this is where I am and this is what I can do. And I am okay with that. That's great. That's great. And yeah, good lesson. Good lesson just as a, as a life lesson. Like, you're yeah. maybe you notice this too. It's a hard thing with, I think with students when they get really caught up on, and I was this way too, but if they get really caught up, it's like, well, I have an A minus, but I'd really like an A. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, of course, now we're both like, come on, like, it, yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's a hard, it's just a hard frame of mind to get out of, particularly if yeah. you were, if I mean, and this is the thing, I think a lot of performance majors in particular are just, they're, they're like type, frequently type, not always, but frequently type A, they're all like accomplishment <laughs> goal. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard thing to reset if you're yeah. not just doing it. Yeah. I mean, and I know that it's, I mean, it's, it really is just a, the developmental stage students or people that young, like are not, can't, you don't have that big picture. You don't have the life experience to feel like the process is more important than the product. You just don't have it. And, and so, and so that's why I feel like as a teacher, like that's one of the things that I want to promote most is the process is more important. And actually, I mean, for me, it's more gratifying than the product. Like I will yeah. say secret here. I don't really love performing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I love practicing though. I yeah. love playing music with people. And I also don't love standing up in front of people and talking, but I love passing on knowledge. I love mm-hmm. music. Like I love all these other things that are like outside of myself more than the thing that makes me nervous. Yeah. And that makes it, that makes it worth it. And then, yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like that. Those are secret things for many mm. performers either. I think we all, yeah. like, we wouldn't keep doing this if we didn't love the the practice moments when you're like, right. you, know, you get the run through and you're like, Hey, that was, even if nobody, even if it's just you, you're like, that was awesome. Like, yes. oh, I yeah. did it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say to my students, like, I spend 99% of my time practicing and 1% of my time performing. Yeah. I mean, could it be different? Yeah, I, I guess I could have, I could perform more, but, but I do enjoy the process. And, and I, and honestly, I think that's like a, another thing that I've thought about a lot lately about how, you know, students, they do have a hard time practicing because it's not a social environment. Yeah. And I never had a problem with that. But I remember even when I was an undergrad that I had, I had friends who um, like articulated to me that like, they just didn't like spending time in the room alone. And I was like, huh? I mean, that's, I love that. I'm, yeah, I, I love being alone. I like big fan. I'm an introvert, hundred um, <laughs> percent. I do what I got to do. I know yeah. how to do, I know how to do the things I got to do, but. Um, Situational extrovert if needed. Yes, and yeah. by by requirement. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Duties is assigned on that one. Yeah. Um, but man, I gotta come home and like just zonk out because I've put out so much energy to to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's even more common that students. Ha- I mean, they you know to spend an hour or five 
by themselves in a room practicing is really, really do. And also given, you know, the whole social media thing that that's very distracting and it's really hard. I mean, even when I was a student and I say, if I was in a room for an hour, I'd be productive for about 40 minutes. I bet if students are in a room for an hour now, they're productive for maybe 20 because there's just so many more things to distract. I was distracted by other people in the hallway, you know, people coming in to say hi, but now it's like, you know, you got that phone that you're using as a metronome and like everything's popping up as a notification unless you, I mean, I've, I don't have any notifications on my phone because I can handle it. Yeah. Um, But I don't think that most people want to do that, especially younger people. They, you know, that's the way that they are involved. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I agree with that. Julie, let's back up. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Ashtabula, Ohio, which is Northeast of Cleveland, about 50 minutes. I used to think it was a little like out in the middle of nowhere, but then I moved to Oneonta. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was about to say. (laughs) So as you you know, when you tell people you teach in New York, they do not think of Oneonta. No, no. That's for sure. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. Uh, But yeah, I went to, I went to high school there, played in the band, jazz Mm -hmm. band, marching band. We were not a competing group. Um, Actually my first, first instrument was the organ. Ooh, well, let's get into that. Well, let's back up a sec to, um, did you have family members in the arts? My grandmother was in the local community choir and she did a lot of musical theater, like community theater. And she has claimed stake uh, on my musical ability. Oh, nice. And I will give it to her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but as far as I, my immediate family, no, nobody else was playing music. I guess uh, when I was in like second grade, my parents bought me uh, like a little Casio keyboard for mm-hmm. Christmas and I was yeah. super into it. And yeah. and they were like, oh, you're going to learn how to play the organ because they bought an organ uh, for themselves as a wedding present, but then never learned how to play it. Uh-huh. And so they hadn't. And by this time, I don't know, how old are you in second grade? Like seven? Uh, seven. Okay. So I was like seven and I have an older brother. They'd been married for like eight or nine years and hadn't learned how to play it. And they're like, oh my gosh, she's going to learn how to play it. So I got organ lessons when I was in second grade, second to fifth grade, I think. Um, And then when I, uh, when I was in fifth grade, I wanted to be in band. So I, for about three weeks played the flute because that's what all the girls were doing. And then I was like, I didn't really want to do that. So I switched to the drums pretty immediately and played the bells uh yeah which is not drums technically no but I did play the drums too like I I do and then so like when I was in fifth and sixth grade because I was in a smaller school the band director didn't really teach us how to read notes Mm -hmm. or percussion much um so like the fact that I could read the read pitches meant that I was playing that instrument a lot and then by the time I got into middle school I was like I'm not playing the bells anymore I want to play the drums and then I started playing drum sets and uh in the the stage band and playing mm-hmm. um, in the marching percussion. And then I got into high school and did mostly, perc- mostly drums and percussion because then we had flute players who were marching the glockenspiel. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Back this was day. back in the day. There was no front ensemble um, mm-hmm. and the, and the flute players were playing the glockenspiel or piano players that wanted to play in marching band. So I was playing snare and cymbals and bass and all that stuff. The, people have made comparisons whether that whether it's with knowledge or not with knowledge, but just kind of acknowledging the sim, like the usage of all limbs, are there comparisons to 
organ versus drum set? I mean, I would definitely say that the coordination is immensely more challenging on the organ than it is hmm. on the drum right, set, especially when you think about like you the slide, right? right? You got to like the heel toe things and like the yes. pedal, and then you, and then you've got all the like multiple manuals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd say it's pretty complicated. And I was actually like, as a whatever second to fifth grader, I was playing with all four limbs. Not yeah. like terribly complicated stuff, but like I was, I was doing it. And uh, yeah. And then like, you know, to start on drum set, like, okay, quarter notes and half notes. Like it's pretty, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Well, I, I guess you weren't, you weren't starting with rush on drum set. Right. Either. No, no, not that. No. <laughs> I think I was playing that I played uh, the first tune I played was another one bites the dust. That's a good one. Right? That's a good opener. I was gonna, it's usually that or back in black is a good it's a good first mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> anything by the Beach Boys is probably fine. Oh um, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's early stuff. Did you did you study organ any further than fifth grade or you just didn't stop? No. There? No, but so, I stopped. Yeah. So like what's if you can remember this, because I've never I've, I've never kind of encountered this with with talking to someone about organ. What what establishes level of difficulty? I guess we'll, let's put it there. Like what what would make what makes a piece get harder? Is it just that everything is moving more often? Yeah, yeah, I much? would say so. Yeah, I mean because like when I started, it was like you know my left foot or one you know there'd be one thing happening in the left foot like a whole yeah. notes or half or, or or you know whole tied whole notes and then you know some more di- difficult things happening in the right hand accompaniment happening in the left hand. Yeah, and then yeah. using the right foot to control the foot pedal and for the volume. Um, yeah. yeah. But then just, you know, things get more complicated. Then you start changing the sounds in the middle mm. of the song and, mm, yeah. and then using both feet on the pedals. Yeah. I, I was pretty beginner though, like okay. after three years and I'm, I, but I am like constantly seeking out uh, organists. Like I, that's another reason why I came back to Capitol because they have an organ and multiple organ like performance majors and and organ in the big hall. And there's a church across the street that they do organ recitals in. Mm. And yeah, even though I don't play it, I'm like, I always want to hear it. It's, Mm. it is, it is a, a destination for me. (laughs) Oh, awesome. It is. It's so fascinating because I think I remember the first time I think I saw an organ recital and it's weird because the person mm-hmm. sitting to their back right. is to the audience because that's yeah. where the organ is. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, and they've got like the mirrors mm-hmm. uh, so they can, you know, like if they were, if they were playing with a choir so they could see like the conductor and. Yeah. Oh, and they're, and they go and then they like have to like get out of their seat, like, like, so they could maybe bow or. Yeah. I played a gig here a couple, like last semester around Christmas time, I think it was where yeah. I actually, it was a, a huge Catholic cathedral downtown and yeah. had an, an amazing organ. And I was playing with like a brass ensemble and timpani. And we were actually up in the balcony with the organist. And I was like, I'm like trying, I'm playing over here and looking like, Oh my God, it's so amazing. Like, what, what am I doing? What are they? Oh my God. <laughs> it was just phenomenal. It's like to be that close and it's yeah. so loud. Yes. Oh, it's so loud. Yeah. Yeah. It's beauty. It is. It is definitely. And that might be like, be like one of the, one of the musical things that I enjoy both as a performer and as a listener is like heavy drone music. And I think it might be from that, like that background in organ, because I just love being immersed in sound. 
So like as a performer, I love doing concerts where I'm just like everything, like the feedback, I do like feedback looping with electronic musicians and, you know, acoustic percussion instruments and just like love, like the room is vibrating so much. I don't even have to hit the drums for the drums to activate the feedback. Like I can just stand there in the middle of all of it and, you know, maybe put my finger on it to like remove a couple of overtones. And that's, that's all I'm doing. Um, (laughs) I just love being immersed in that big sound. You did you do you start taking lessons in junior high, high school? I think I must have started in like in middle school. I actually took drum set lessons for maybe a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get into that and how I was afraid of playing. I, I did, was not afraid to play the drum set, but I would not play it in front of anybody. I think it, it kind of was like the beginning of my not wanting people to look at me. Oh, sure. And like being a girl playing the drums, like I was like, oh my God, like I can't just play the drum. I'm like a girl playing the drums. And it always just like made me uncomfortable to be the center of attention. Like I want to play the drums because I want to be behind everything and like hiding. And then, you know, being a girl playing the drums just was like, wow, we have to like actually watch this person. And and I just felt too conspicuous all the time that I, I loved playing it, but I just, I was like, I wouldn't even play it in front of my parents. Mm. I would wait till everybody left the house to play, which they were, they did not like that very much, but. <laughs> you were like, you were doing them a service by not blowing their eardrums out. Probably. Yes. Yes. Um, what was what kind of stuff when you were playing back then? What was your favorite things that played too? Um, actually, like mo- mostly rock, like yeah. classic rock kind of stuff. But I actually found uh, my dad is, was has been going. He's always going through stuff at the house and kind of getting rid of things. And he found a bunch of old VHS videos, mm-hmm. and then like took a screen or took a video shot of him watching this video that he took of me playing drums, which I don't remember. So I don't know if I knew that he was videoing or not, but it was really interesting because I was not playing the drum set like, you know, boom, chick, boom, yeah, yeah. chick. Yeah, high, high heels over here, left hand playing snare drum, backbeat, bass drum on one and three. Uh-huh. I was playing like melodies on the toms. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh my God, that's really interesting. Like, I like how did I start was just like playing pitched things around the instrument. Mm-hmm. I don't remember doing that, but that I was like very, the video, I mean, I had to been in like seventh grade, I think is when I first got a drum set. So yeah. I was like, well, that's pretty cool. I didn't have to play. Like, it's like the interesting thing about what you play when you don't know what you're supposed to play. Sure. Yeah. What do you do when you don't know what you're supposed to do? Like that's the most interesting time in life. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny that you saying that I'm thinking, were you, uh, did you listen to Cream? Because uh, that's, because Ginger Baker did a ton yeah. of like Tom oh, work as kind of part of the, or the Who, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Keith Moon does like, is like yeah. playing drum fills is the, is the groove actually. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, Cause like mostly at that point, like what I was listening to as a musician or a person that consumes music was whatever my older brother was listening to or whatever my parents happened to listen to. Yeah. Um, now at that point, I think my brother was very much into Metallica. I was very much into heavy metal and sure. I really wanted Sweet. to do that. Um, nice. And uh, 
but then I, and then whatever my parents were listening to at that time, like they had a lot of classic rock stuff, but they also then got into like the, the nineties adult contemporary, just not the coolest. Um, but Celine Dion. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That, but I think I tried, yeah, I tried to do some of the metal stuff and, um, oh, and then I was in a band that played one song. Oh, um, that, and we gigged, we played it at like two parties two like middle school or high school part. I don't even know, but we played one song bullet with butterfly wings with the smashing pumpkins. And like, I remember that that was my second, like real tune that I learned. And then the, the drum set that I had was, um, not a very, we'll call it, we'll say it didn't have the, the most dense materials. Sure. So every time I moved it, something would break. Like I, there, it, by the time I, by the time I got rid of it, I think I only had like three lugs left on the bass drum and yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So yeah, I think, so I did, I took drum set lessons in middle school and then I, and I did play, I did continue playing drum set and jazz band a, a few years. Um, but then I also took uh, lessons with our percussion instructor at the high school um, Pete Stevenson, who uh, had a big background in drum set and rudimental snare drumming. So I got a lot of like rudimental stuff in at that time. Um, yeah. Then I went, then I went to college. Oh, and I did like when I was in high school too, I did uh, get into the Cleveland and Cleveland youth wind symphony. And I played in the Erie junior Philharmonic and took lessons with some of the students at, uh, at those places too, the graduate students at uh cleveland cleveland institute of music that was good those year round or like summer only or what those were year round actually yeah usually a summer tour i don't know if it happened every year or if it was every other year but that was my first like abroad oh where were you going uh we went to germany and switzerland and italy and did some other stupid things the other things were stupid <laughs> oh like what <laughs> like missing the bus because they i don't know like I, I missed the bus at least once and had to find my way back to the hotel before the concert at some point oh. uh yeah because they would just like kind of let us go mm-hmm. and explore the towns explore yeah. the cities and we're like you know 17 hmm. year olds not the most responsible. What? What? <laughs> yeah. Shocking news, Julie. Yeah. This is news to everyone, actually. <laughs> <laughs> when yeah. you were when you were growing up before college, were you involved in anything else that was taking up your time, either sports, student hmm. government, or church-related activities, anything else? Yeah, I played lots of sports. I did tennis and track and cross country. I did basketball in junior high. Um, and I also like I was I've always been into weightlifting and I do this mm. still. I started lifting weights when I was playing tennis because their tennis coach thought that it was a really important part of physical development. And I just continued doing that. Like I wouldn't say that I've done it every day for the past 25 years, but it's been a pretty staple of my of my daily routine for a long time. And that's that's been fun. Cause I think that's like another like huge thing that's really like important for the longevity of being able to play the instrument um, yeah. is, you know, making sure that these things like particularly the shoulders yeah. work the right way. I worked, I was, I, I, I worked a mm-hmm. lot, um, probably like 20 hours a week 
and multiple jobs. And then, yeah. And after what's that like fast food. Yeah. I worked at Burger King for a good two years. I was employed by a temp, a temp agency Mm. for a long time. I, so I was doing like data entry envelope stuffing, like filing that kind of stuff, uh, which was really pretty good money. It is. Uh, I got offered a couple of jobs even before I was uh, in college. Mm. And, And luckily Luckily the, the people, like the people were like, we want to offer you a job, but like, you also should go to college, but like, you would be really good at doing this. And like, hmm, it's a kind of attractive to be offered a job that you're going to make like 30, $40,000 a year. I mean, that was 20 years ago or go to college and spend $60,000 a year to, to do that. But yeah. yeah, look, I didn't do that. Luckily I did not do that. Yeah. I'm glad you made the point about the temp agency, that was something my wife did when, when yeah. she was in college on breaks, she would, they, they would, she would go and they would put her, they frequently put her with like a, one of the local corporations that yeah. she, so she went to, went there a number of years. And like the next year she got more responsibilities and then made more money. And it yeah. was always, you could actually do pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> those temp jobs. I mean, I don't think I ever, like, it was never like a temp job where I went in and did like a day here or a day there. Like I yep. was in, I worked an entire summer at a chemical plant in the, the, um, well, what's it, uh, I guess payables and receivables or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. And I did that for an entire summer. And then I did it again over spring, over winter break and spring break. And then the next summer. And yep. I was like working 40 hours a week. Like <laughs> it was great. You and going back to the the tennis thing, mm. it, you know when you mentioned the the late weightlifting, I was thinking it's tennis is is kind of fascinating because you're not you're not helped by being jacked. Well, unless you're right. Roger Nadal, that's a different thing. But <laughs> yeah. like, but but because you need like you still need a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. to do that. You you need strength too, but like the flexibility thing is is like still a massive part of that yeah. field. And just speed and right. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of thinking and fast thinking. Yes, yeah. yes, mm. yeah, it's good. How how good how good were you? Oh, not very good. I, for most sports, I did them because I wanted to keep moving. I wasn't ever good at any of it, even running. Like, I run better now than I did then, mm-hmm. uh, but no. I just, I just, uh, just, I don't know. I like felt, I always felt like it was important to keep moving. I had this, like this, there's a, there's a thing that's like transferred through my entire life Mm -hmm. that I did when I was in kindergarten. I remember, I think I, we had to like write out, write out our goals for our life. And Mm -hmm. one of the goals that I wrote down, you have to write the goal and then what you, what you plan to do to reach that goal. So my goal was, I want to live to be 100. And in order to do that, I have to eat well. I have to exercise regularly. I have to do things that make me happy. Like all of that's st- like, I don't, I don't know how like anybody remembers anything from, from kindergarten, but like, I do remember this and it's just like, for whatever reason, it's just always been the way that I've tried to live. Like, obviously sometimes it doesn't happen. I, life happens and things get in the way. And sometimes I'm don't do things that make me happy, but you know, I, I think it's like, a, it's been an overarching movement in my life. How do you end up getting to capital for undergrad? Let's see. I, I know I auditioned at a couple of schools in Ohio, um, but I actually, um, 
I wanted to go to Capitol because it had a music industry program. And at that time, that was one of the few, like every school has a music industry program now, but in what that was like 98, I started college in 98. Um, I really wanted to the music industry program, which I didn't actually end up finishing. I, I, I changed my major a couple of times as an undergrad. I was, I think I started as music industry and music education. I dropped education after about two months, added music performance and then by the time I graduated, I just had the performance degree. And I think I had most of the music industry degree. I just didn't do the recording studio workshop that would have kept me there for like another semester that I didn't want to pay for. So sure. that's the only reason I didn't didn't finish it. So what was the percussion program like when you entered? My class was very interesting because mine my class was quite large and most of us stayed through the entire four years, which is pretty unheard of. Cause I think there was at least eight of us to start. And I think six of us finished mm. which again is like at, at the retention at this, you know, these kind of institutions seems to be pretty low. Like you finish that first year and like half the class doesn't come back and you finish the next year and another half doesn't come back. But it was interesting uh, because there were a lot of like all, all of us, we were all focused in different areas. There was, maybe one other, if there was another performance major in my class, but in the percussion studio, but there might've been one other, there was a couple music education, a couple of jazz studies majors, and then a couple of music industry majors. And I think like, that's one of the things that I really liked about it is that there is a bunch of different directions people can go and everybody's even, even within the same major, you can be focusing on different kinds of music in terms of the other classes. I mean, the same, they may be somewhere between four and six. So there was like between 20 and 25 percussion majors at Capitol when I was a student. And I think that's been pretty, pretty consistent for the past, however, 20, 30 years here until now because of COVID and the dropping numbers of like college age kids. And, yeah. and also now like, you know, there's students dealing with the transition of a new teacher, uh, right, sure. yeah, yeah. Which, which has been a thing always or is always a thing. You were studying under Bob. Yeah, I studied with Bob Brighthop, Eric Payton, and Jim Ed Cobbs uh, was also teaching um, drum set and per some percussion ensembles, I think. And there was a couple of other adjunct faculty to teaching at that time, like Ben Ramirez, who teaches at, or he's um, the timpanist for the Columbus Symphony, was doing some lessons. And there was actually one other female in my class mm. at that time. And we both finished. And that was. Who was that? Um, Allison McCabe, and she's teaching. She's teaching actually pretty close, close by near Capitol, near Columbus. The the landscape of the studio now is it's. I came into a studio of entirely male mm. student pop student body and faculty, like just in the percussion studio. Yeah. So like the transition, just I mean, even if I did everything exactly the same as the previous faculty, right. it would still be a major change. And, and the fact is I don't do everything the same way. <laughs> so it's, it's a pretty major change. And sometimes that's, it's challenging. Yeah. Uh, but overall it's been like, I've felt very welcomed, supported. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, when you're in undergrad, what is the focus for you as a percussion major? Is it like a, like the broad, Percussion general, or yeah. were you? Was, yeah. it, there's a, was there a lot of specialization? 
the the studio and Bob Brett have always kind of pres- like curated the studio to be well-rounded. So no matter whether you're a jazz studies major or a, you know, a performance major who wants to play in an orchestra, like you have to do all the things you have to, you had to learn the, all of the things. But I also think that like, it's, it was just strange at that time, like, and I, maybe it's less now than it was 20 years ago, but I feel like even, even in the context of like a broader percussion education, like there always seemed to be so much focus on formal at marimba. Mm-hmm. And I think it's becoming a little bit less. Um, I think so too. But it, but like, I always thought like, yeah, I spent 90% of my time practicing the formal at marimba stuff because I really, I, I didn't know how to do it when I got to college. You know, a lot of students know how to play formalets now before they even start college. Um, but I didn't have an instructor um, in high school that could do that. So I spent a lot of time catching up. And now, you know, as a as I'm teaching, I I focus, I, I also want the students to have like a, a well-rounded base of information, but I don't like Barimba is not the primary focus for me as a as an educator. And I get students if they, you know, I get students playing drum set in their first year, if they don't play it at all, it's something that they will continue to do throughout because I think that that is, um, um, has a wider application, I guess. It's certainly more, you're more likely to be employed doing that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. If nothing else. And that's what I've said. Like I've made more money. I like, you know, for the longest time, even though I've played drum set since like middle school, I've Mm -hmm. never really considered myself a drum set player, though I do play it. And I have actually made more money playing drum set than anything else. So it's, it's, it's important to to have that skill. And it was, it, I mean, I did do that in capital too, when I was a student, it was, it was important, but the, like the level that I had to play, it was much lower than the level I had to be able to play formal at marimba and formal at marimba was also just a lot harder Yeah, to learn because it's pretty unnatural. <laughs> Do you remember some of what you played on either recitals or some of the ensemble mm-hmm. concerts? Um, some recital music I played. I played some Bach and, you know, like the ragtime, you know, George Hamilton Green stuff. But I honestly don't, I don't fully, I don't remember much <laughs> um, beyond that. Uh, I play. I also did like, actually, that's not, that's not totally true. I did always do chamber music too when I was a student like chamber mixed ensemble chamber music and actually that was like one of the first times that I played with a flute player mm. um played the Ingolf Dahl flute concertino uh yeah. flute percussion concertina um and and I was always like working with the composition department and mm. asking you know student composers to write pieces for me so I had a, a couple of pieces that friends of mine wrote that I played on recitals and and that's that's something that has continued through, through my professional career too, that I, I like playing music that hasn't been played before. Um, and that was actually like, that's why I can't remember the names stuff because yeah. like, I actually like actively was like, I'm not going to play yellow after the rain. And yeah, I, yeah. I have only once in my entire career taught a student on yellow after the rain once, mm-hmm. one time. Yeah, and yeah. I'm very, very happy about that. And I won't ever do it again. I was like, I can do it once. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was like very much, into seeking new music, even at that time, which I think is, you know, part of it was probably like, I want to play music that nobody else has played because I want to present new music, but I also don't want anybody to know when I miss notes (laughs) because they've never heard the piece before. Yeah. (laughs) 
that was, that was probably the primary uh, initiator in that one. But now like I, I, what I think one of the things that I've been doing with my students is that I've, I'm really proud of is that I'm having my students when they pick out, when they pick music, they are constantly like, like I'm not having them, nobody, no two people are playing the same thing. And I'm having them, like they are all at this point, even after just one year, very familiar with the composer diversity databases. And they're like, they are finding music I've never heard of before. It is just amazing to like, understand, like, to know like how much music is out there that, that is just not getting played. Right. And it needs like, things need to get played. Like we need to find, we need to find music in other places. And I remember when I first started teaching, I would go into like, when I would, you know, find percussion ensemble music, I would go into Steve Weiss or tap space or drop six and just start like searching for what percussion ensemble pieces for six players. And like, it's all very much the same people. And it's no, you know, I'm not, I'm not here like knocking on these publishers or the, or the distributors, like there are things that can be done to change that even as a younger teacher like I was I was utilizing that as a resource 100% and like only like in the last like five to ten years have I really been very very proactive of saying like I'm not going to go to that space I've there's now all these databases that exist that highlight music or have music of female composers for percussion black women composers for percussion Iranian women composers like LGBTQI composers like there are so many places that can be looked now and PAS I will I use that they have a, a meta database uh, mm-hmm. that lists all of these databases. And I mean, I, I have that bookmarked and all of my students have that bookmarked. That is where they're finding music now. And I think it's just amazing that that, that exists, that we have those resources that are collecting these pieces so that more music can get pay- more music can get played because there's a lot of good music out there. And we'll get to part two with Julie next week, so stay tuned. This week's rave is the classic 1980 film, My Bodyguard, starring Chris Makepeace, Matt Dillon, Adam Baldwin, Ruth Gordon, and Martin Mull, along with cameo appearances by Joan Cusack and Jennifer Beals, and directed by Tony Bill. Available for streaming, honestly, wherever. This is a movie that I first got introduced to through my older siblings not too long after it had come out. It somewhat hit a nerve for me that I don't shake whenever I revisit the film. As someone who's had to deal with various forms of bullying over the years, it still connects. As is also usually the case, it's fun to rewatch movies as one gets older and you're at a different facet of your life. The general plot is that Chris Makepeace plays the lead character, a short high school student who enters as a new student in a public high school, coming likely from a private upper-class background. This is established through his father, who's a hotel owner and manager played by Martin Mull, and his grandmother, played up to the hilt in a very wacky performance by Ruth Gordon. Makepeace enters the local public high school in downtown New York City at a time when the city was not in its best shape, and gets caught up in a bullying scheme where he's being bullied by a very young Matt Dillon, who's probably never better playing an asshole in a movie. Joan Cusack 
and an uncredited Jennifer Beals are both in the film as background high school characters, and in the midst of the bullying, Makepeace attempts to befriend Adam Baldwin, playing an older, much larger student who everyone is afraid of because of his unknown past and documented bad behavior. And he in turn becomes the bodyguard, setting the stage. There's so much to comment on the film, watching it again at this much later date. One, the casting of this movie is excellent, considering that all of the major school characters were actually high school age. Even Adam Baldwin, who at times looked like he was in his late 20s. Two, the visuals of New York City at this time bring me back to some very early memories for me, particularly at a time when we as kids were not allowed to walk around New York City without significant adult supervision. And three, it's very clear that many of the characters were dealing with tremendous mental health situations that were not being addressed in any way. Dylan's character clearly has something going on that's not being addressed. Make Peace's family situation is sometimes helpful and frequently not. And Baldwin's dealing with some PTSD from a significant death. And that is contributing to his frequently unresponsive nature. I don't know that I'd uncover some great message from this film, but I will say that the way it all concludes is pretty satisfying. This is definitely a throwback film that really pulls you in a lot of directions, good and bad, and I think it's still well worth your time. Currently on Max, and likely found on other streaming sites, check out either again or for the first time, My Bodyguard. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at PeteZambito or by email at PetesPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Julie Licata. Until then.